Welcome back to Oncology Data Advisor. My name is Rahul Banerjee, and I'm one of the board members of Oncology Data Advisor. I'm also an assistant professor of medicine at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. Today, it's my pleasure to be joined by Dr. Yi. Andrew, Dr. Andrew Yi is a clinical director for multiple myeloma at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. He's also an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He specializes in multiple myeloma, and both of us were there at the International Myeloma Society meeting last uh, two months ago in uh, September in Greece, where the Canova study of uh, venetic clax and dexamethasone was published. Dr. Yi, pleasure to have you uh, joining us back on the program today. Hey, Rahul, th thanks for having us. And, and, and it's great to always be talking on myeloma, especially on a late Friday afternoon. Uh, yes, always fun. And, uh, one of the and I think the key disclosure is we were actually talking about this trial before Athens. And I think before Athens, before the Canova data was presented, I think all of us were really excited to hear this data. And all of us had assumed it was going to be a slam dunk in favor of the venetoclax arm. And when the data was presented, that was um, that was a little bit of an eye opener. Uh, you know, it it was it did put some pause in our how we think about our how we think about um, you know how we think about the efficacy in TLM fourteen as well as clinical trial design. I completely agree. Yeah, this was going to be as part of Blood Cancer Awareness Month. We were talking about precision medicine and myeloma. Are we there yet? And we talked this big game, all this, you know, cool data that yes. we'll talk about from the Bellini study. And then, you know, I don't know if you or any listeners are fans of Loki or the Marvel Cinematic user, if we had to time slip backwards because Canova changed everything, as we'll talk right. about. And now we're back to re-recording our podcast. We, we, we the... re-recorded just to make it, uh, so it's just, uh, just a disclosure. I don't, yeah, all, we, we were both in Athens that day and I feel like there was just like a hush came over this auditorium of hundreds of people in this ancient opera house for, from Greece when the study was presented. So let's get into it then. So, you know, as we've set this big stage about how big the study was a surprise to us, Let's talk about T1114. So what is it referred to in myeloma? When you hear that someone's myeloma cells on their bone marrow biopsy has translocation 1114, what do you think about? Right. So we think so we think about when we think about multiple myeloma, we think about some characteristics, molecular subtypes. And IGH translocations is one of the characteristic subtypes. About half of half of myeloma patients will have an IGH translocation. And this includes translocation 1114, 1416, et cetera, et cetera. And these translocations are felt to be there from the beginning. You know, these are probably presumably involved in one of the early stages of the transition from being a benign plasma cell to a myeloma cell. So in translocation 1114, you have uh, the IGH uh, locus connected to uh, chromosome 11, which has, you know, which we think of as cyclin D1. Mm -hmm. And about 15% of patients roughly will have translocation 1114. And the other interesting thing about, even though it's cyclin D1, it's not necessarily related to cyclin D1 per se in and of itself. And it has to do with the BCL2 uh, pathways, et cetera. And, the, when I, when, and then the, a, a couple other things to point out would be number one is that translocation 1114 uh, really requires fish to detect, right? You exactly. can't you know, just do conventional cytogenetics to pick up translocation 1114. This applies to... Uh, other translocations like 414, for example, and it really emphasizes that if, if you're if you have a clinical concern for myeloma, that you know clinicians should be doing a myeloma specific fish panel so that you can pick up these specific uh, translocations. And the other thing about translocation on 14 that's interesting is that it can be associated with certain phenotypes like non-secretory mm -hmm. disease, for example, or it can and it, it tends to be more 
prevalent in conditions like AL amyloidosis or plasma cell leukemia. So those are all, you know, kind of unique clinical characteristics with translocation 1114. And then this will probably segue into our discussion of venetoclax. I think another interesting feature about translocation 1114 is that sensitivity to inhibition of BCL2. Absolutely so. Yeah, I think it's an excellent segue. You know, I think going back to FISH, I think most physicians, right, they check FISH at diagnosis, standard risk versus high risk. This is standard risk. And then people think it doesn't really matter after, whereas after that, this is a scenario where in the real refractory setting, if you know someone has to have them 14, it might actually change your management. So exactly. maybe we can get into it with the Bellini study, because that's what kind of <laughs> first paved the path for this, uh, right. uh, you know, paradigm. So maybe can you tell me, can you tell us a bit more about that study? Right. Well, I, I think even before Bellini, I think, you know, there was the appreciation that, you know, that, that cell lines with translocation on 14 were very sensitive venetoclax. And then very that led true. to some initial first uh, initial studies uh, in people, with, whereas a single agent, they were seeing response rates of 40%. And then that paved the path for using for Bellini, which was a, is a, was a phase three randomized study that compared uh, the addition of venetoclax to bortezomib and dexamethasone versus bortezomib and dexamethasone in relapsed and refractory patients. And, you know, I think based on, and this was across all patients, irrespective of mm-hmm. translocations. And I think the study was moving along forward, but then they, we, there was a Dear Investigator letter in 2019 that showed that, you know, that the road was getting kind of bumpier because there was a concern for increased mortality with with the venetoclax arm. So then that put that led to, a clinical hold. And, you know, so this kind of speaks to the importance of doing randomized studies, right? We kind of assume that this drug is going to work great, but then you really need a phase three study to really see what the, what the difference is. You can't just rely on single arm studies. And it turns out that yes, across all comers, there was, you know, a concern for increased mortality and that perhaps could relate to infection, but absolutely in the small, small subset of patients who had translocation 1114, you know, the you saw a whopping benefit in terms of efficacy. I think a hazard ratio of 0.12, and then the overall survival was preserved, maintained, and so suggesting that the, the, because of the degree of efficacy, it sort of overshadows any potential decrement related to infection. So, um, but I think you know that that was just a tiny number of patients, like maybe 20 patients, like a small proportion, and the. Bellini study, but, but even though but based on those findings that they did motivate using uh, venetoclax, you know, off-label, especially, you know, in patients who've exhausted all options, I, I think having this as an option was helpful. So I think this motivated the Canova study because you need a confirmatory study, right? Again, it was just an assumption, again, post-hoc analysis. And, you know, there, there are examples of where, you know, post-hoc analyses have led people uh, down no paths, unintended paths. And uh, the Canova study was a definite was meant to be is meant to be a definitive study to really answer the question, can we use venetoclax in translocation 1114? Very, very well stated. Yeah, I remember that letter just as you do. And I, I joke to, you know, readers of the podcast, you see the link to it, you'll see if you look at the letter, the FDA was so rushed to unpave that road that you actually can see the little red squiggles in the Kaplan-Meier curve yeah. where there were the, the spell check hadn't been turned on. They took a screenshot so quickly <laughs> to get the data out here. Um, 
but you're right. You know, I think the idea is that, as you're alluding to, like venetoclax does have risks in these patients like infections. And you're like, who are these patients for where the benefits dramatically outweigh the risks? And so Bellini couldn't directly answer that question because it wasn't powered or it wasn't designed yeah. to. So let's pivot to Canova. So how was Canova designed with that in mind? So, so Canova is just focused on patients with translocation 1114. And it was a randomized study compared to venetoclax dex versus a standard control of pomalidomide index, which, you know, the audience has heard before because there are two other randomized studies that use pomalidomide index and methasone. And uh, it, was, it was a standard pomalidomide dex, you know, four milligrams of palm, 40 milligrams of dex. And I think the thing to appreciate with Canova is that they used venetoclax 800 milligrams with, with 800 milligrams of venetoclax with dex 40 milligrams. And they, they randomized about 130 patients uh, to each arm. And, you know, you know, we're whole thinking about this further. Um, I, you know, we, we were waiting for Canova for a long time, right? Many years, a long indeed. time. And I was thinking, you know, gosh, you know, I, I would have thought going in this based on the Bellini, based on the hazard, this was going to be a slam dunk. It's going to be, you know, it's going to blow it out of the park and general and having, and that was my initial prior, but then I'm thinking, God, you know, it's been taking such a long time to read out. And then, you know, of course, some of it had to do with COVID uh, that was affecting the cruel. Uh -huh. uh, but generally speaking, if, if something works really well, you generally hear about, it reaches its endpoint pretty quickly. And then usually there's a press release. And I'm just thinking about, for example, some of those daratumumab-based studies. You know, you, you, there'd be, you know, they, they, there's a daratumumab set for newly diagnosed or relapsed, they accrue, and then there'd be a press release pretty quickly. And then way, like, for example, I think about, you know, the, the daratumumab lendex, how that study started after elotuzumab and started after exasmid, but they presented their data before because of the hazard ratio was so effective. So anyway, my assumption was, oh, it's, it, the Canova's kind of a great hazard ratio, but the, the longer and longer, I was like, mm, getting a little bit concerned. But I still was really hopeful. Uh, well, especially because as we talked about the first iteration of this podcast, it was kind of precision medicine against, you know, generic medicine. This is not cookie cutter, specifically exactly. precision pills that block 1114. And I think, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it, Bellini was a triplet versus doublet. This is a doublet to doublet trial, right? So they yeah, went the, bit, yes, a little, a little bit little more, more but ambitious. It's focused. It's not all comers. It didn't meet its primer endpoint. The PFS was not statistically significant. You know, I'm, I'm looking, referring to my notes, there was like 9.9 .9 versus 5.8 months. The hazard ratio was 0 0.823 and it and the p-value was 0 0.237. So it didn't meet its primer endpoint. So, you know, initially I thought, you know, 0.823, God, that's not even that, that's not even dramatic. that dramatic. And, um, you know, it's not the the 0.12 that we saw with, uh, you know, in that little tiny subset of, of, of the Bellini. And I think, you know, in terms of, you know, of course, the trying to dice, the trying to unpack, you know, what, you know, why is this the case? How, you know, how could this study, uh, you know, how could this, how did it play out this way? And so one of the explanations was that, you know, this, ha this has to do with how we do think about IMWG confirmed responses, how we define, you know, progression events. And for IMWG, you have to have a confirmed progression event as in, a, you know, you can have an M spike go from 0.5 to 1, but it has to be confirmed on the subsequent blood test to say this is confirmed progression. And what was going on in, you know, one of the issues was that patients were switching to a new line of therapy even before it's firmly, formally confirmed as progression. And as a result, the, those events were, were censored. 
Now, if you changed, you reanalyze the data post hoc and say, okay, anybody that changed to a new line of therapy, we're going to call it progression. Well, then you do see it, it was a, the hazard ratio of 0 0.651. And, you know, the p-value is 0 0.003. So that was the post hoc analysis. Another interesting, um, so that was one aspect of it. And the second mm -hmm. aspect of it was uh, the overall survival. You know, there was that concern about worse overall survival. Correct. Actually, you know, the overall survival looked improved, right? The, the hazard ratio was 0 0.697. Um, now, I should, you know, just normally I tend to be really enthusiastic about stuff when we're talking about stuff, right? Because I mean, I mean, it's easily for me I'm to I'm the get, same way. Yes, indeed. To get, um, you, know, you know, once we get going. Um, but, you know, I think something to point out is that yeah, there was, you know, there was some concerns with infections. So there were seven treatment-related adverse event deaths that were attributed to, you know, venetoclax. So that's just something to be, you know, mindful of as we're using this drug. Now, how do I think about that in clinical practice? Like, what does this mean? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the the dosing of venetoclax, it's 800 milligrams. And I think in clinical practice, you know, I think, you know, 400 or even 200 milligrams can work very well, and I'm not, I'm not sure what do you the dosing and and a part of me wonders you know lower dose maybe that risk of infection would be much less as well as also the side effects right because I think Completely some of the other agreed. side effects are GI related you know, diarrhea you know diarrhea for one for example and I think also venetoclax comes to 100 milligram pill 100 milligrams and it's also just from convenience so it's also easier. Agreed, agreed. So you know we'll come back to at the end you know. I'll come back to the, you know, how we approach it now in terms of the dosing in the real world setting and yeah. not even retrospectively with our own patients today. But yeah, I mean, I think this comes, you're right. I think one of the biggest takeaways from the study for me was not really anything to do with venetoclax or pomalidomide, but all of a sudden clinical trial design. You're right. Like, how do you define censoring? Is it informative or non-informative? Normally, it's really someone coming off study early should really be completely random, non-informative. And here, clearly, patients who are on Pomdex were being taken off at higher rates and moving to something different and weren't really counting towards this PFS advantage. The thing we'll hold to just to point out is also, you wonder if they had put more patients on too. Like maybe if they had put like maybe 50 or 100, I'm not, I, don't, I don't know the statistics behind this, but maybe if they had more patients, they would, maybe the hazard ratio would have, you know, they would have been statistically significant. So, Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> it um, just... Yeah, I, but like you said, I think mean, the important part, as you alluded to, is like there have been other studies with POM and DEC where you see better, deeper responses, but increased mortality. Here, the overall survival, as you're alluding to, does seem to, not not statistically significant, does seem to suggest that this Vendex is real. And what we saw is more a function of just the quirks of clinical trial design and how the endpoint exactly, was defined more exactly. than anything and, else. And, or just maybe, maybe you need to add, have more patients. But of course, you know, with these, you know, these, these trials are, are cumbersome. They require they require resources and you know and and money, etc. In terms of how you use, you know the dosing of ven, I think you know myeloma. You know for these for the, in these studies with ven and myeloma, all the patients started at the assigned dose from from day one. There's no uh, there's no Ramp loading up. dose. You know there's mm -hmm. not the concern for you know tumor lysis syndrome that you would see with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So all these all these patients are started full dose from day one. But you know, I think in pra practice, you know, some in some patients that do start at 200, some patients that start at 400. Uh, and the other part too is, you know, the Canova was the doublet. But, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think we should also think about triplet combinations. So for so I'm, I'm just thinking, for example, you know, somebody who's Maya translocation 1114, 
Dara Rev into progressing, yeah, I, I think that would be a perfect opportunity to, you know, they never seen a proteasome inhibitor and they have translocation on 14. I, I, even with the results of the Canova study not being positive, I'd be, I'd feel totally comfortable using venetoclax portazumab dex in, in that patient population. Agreed. I mean, yeah, even, you know, venetoclax uh, with the Velcade, you know, what the Bellini did, you have to wonder if Canova was just Bellini cloned on 14, yeah, things yeah, would have been different. Exactly. And... They, they, they're just like repeat Bellini, then they, yeah, it would have been. It could have been a slam dunk with a tiny number of patients. So maybe we can pivot to that now that we've done this time slip. So we we basically, for the audience listening, we did this entire podcast. We're so excited about Canova coming out. And then it changed at the last second. We're like, let's time slip backwards and start over again. There were some other, uh, you know, research uh, abstract presented at IMS with venetic Clacklum 14 that didn't involve Canova. Can you talk a little bit about, about those and whether you would have kind of leaned towards those instead right. in real world practice today? Right, so uh, there are other, um, so there are other comp- there are other randomized studies that were presented as well. Like, so Dr. Coffin presented two studies. One looked at daratumumab, venetoclax index, and the other one looked at uh, carfilzomib with venetoclax index. So you have two other randomized studies. But granted, these studies were relatively small. Like each of these arms had around 20, 15 to twenty patients. But it consistently, uh, you saw that there was a numerically significant uh, improvement in you know, with the addition of venetoclax. I'm just thinking of, you know, venetoclax carfilzomib index, uh, you know, it was kind of a doubling of the, you know, PFS. I had to, it was like uh, 32 mm-hmm. versus 14 months when you added uh, venetoclax to carfilzomib index. And, you know, then your next question was, it statistically significant? I think it, it didn't, it didn't show statistical significance because I think the numbers were so small that the hazard, that the numbers were so small. So I think in my mind, um, I think it, these are just more proof of concept, you know, just extension that that the venetoclax can add significant benefit in translocation on 14. And, you know, the choice of partner, um, it, it just means that you have just more additional opportunities to partner with venetoclax. Absolutely so. Yeah, and it's interesting, what the one of Dr. Kaufman's abstracts, right, John's work had, I think, Van 400 and Van 800, and you can see that 400 probably worked as well. Maybe, yes. again, not big enough to tell for sure, but, you know, non-inferior, so to speak, in terms of maybe fewer toxicities and working just as well. Right. So then maybe I'll close by asking, you know, so now that we've time slipped all over the place and we're in our current <laughs> multiverse, now in our sacred timeline, we are where we are now. How do you use a clax for your patient who comes in tomorrow in clinic, 1114, yeah. let's say two prior lines that say, how would you approach venetic clacks or not approach venetic clacks there? No, I, I, I think, I think the Canova doesn't change my usage of venetic. I am you going to be up, uh, continue using it the same way. I think if anything else, the data from Athens, you know, Dr. Kaufman's data kind of further reinforces usage of venetic clacks, especially in a three drug combination. So I think, you know, if I saw a patient um, you know, who has translocational M14 and who hasn't, and is not, and you know, that would be at relapse disease. I think that would be a perfectly fine opportunity to use, you know, venetoclax. You know, sometimes I do use it as a doublet, you know, with dexamethasone, and sometimes I use it as a triplet. Um, and then I should acknowledge that, you know, that, that there are other, there are other trials looking at BCL2 yeah. inhibition. So Beijing, for example, you know, just disclosure, you know, we're involved in the clinical trial using Beijing's Sunrotoclax, which is another BCL2 inhibitor, you know, it has some characteristics where it's like more potent than venetoclax. And so I think there'll be other opportunities for other clinical trials to look at BCL2 inhibition to kind of further round out where, you know, where, where BCL2 inhibition plays in 
uh, in myeloma care. Absolutely so. Well, great. Well, I'm looking forward to the next iteration of this talk next year, hopefully with uh, fewer surprises and we can do the <laughs> podcast on the first time around, the second exactly. time around. <laughs> so with that in mind, thank you again, Andrew. Thanks again, Dr. Yi, for your time and expertise on this matter. And for everyone who's listening, thank you for uh, humoring me in my uh, multiverse uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, references. And thank you all for your time. Have a good day. And thank you. Thank you, Rahul. Thank you. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm.